This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In the next 60 seconds, you could become a millionaire. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the official Lotto America drawing. Most people dream of winning the lottery. There's an inherent belief that a lot of money can make your troubles disappear. Who hasn't fantasized about winning big and then heading into work the next day to quit in glorious fashion? And for most lottery winners, this is absolutely the case. But for an unlucky few, winning the lottery was a curse, a disaster, a horrible twist of fate that resulted in bankruptcy, injury, and even death. It's hard to imagine anyone regretting a winning ticket, but for the people in this episode, that's exactly the case. Okay, some lottery winners bring bad luck onto themselves. That was the case for 25-year-old Anthony Amato. In February 2013, Anthony won $75,000 on a scratch ticket. He told Kansas lottery officials that he planned to split the money with his mother and buy a car with his portion. But instead of buying that car, Anthony used a portion of his winnings to buy meth and marijuana for him and his 27-year-old brother, Joseph. On the night of February 15th, Anthony and his brother were partying at home when Joseph went to the kitchen to refill a butane lighter. But as he did so, fumes began leaking into the air. The fumes were so bad, they eventually reached the furnace and the pilot light inside. The reaction triggered an explosion, which shook the entire building on its foundation, injuring one of the brothers. Joseph suffered second-degree burns on his hands, arms, and chest. His girlfriend loaded him into the car and drove him to the emergency room entrance, and then sped off. When police arrived at the damaged house, Anthony ran outside to meet them and voluntarily confessed to having drugs in his possession. He was arrested on the spot, without incident. He was later charged with one count of possessing drug paraphernalia and two counts of drug possession. He was initially given probation, but quickly violated the conditions and was sent to prison for a year and a half. His brother Joseph faced similar charges and was arrested just three days after being released from the hospital. Ironically, when the brothers blew up their house celebrating their big lottery win, Joseph was wearing an official, lucky, Kansas Lottery t-shirt. Probably not the kind of publicity the gaming board was looking for. But then, here we are. Investigators are expected back at the scene after a house exploded. This blaze put one person in the hospital. Crews worked for hours overnight to get this situation under control. You can't see the house from where we're standing, but if you look near where those emergency lights are there... Lottery winners will be the first to tell you that when they won, it was curious how many friends got in touch. Friends who came crawling out of the woodwork, hoping to share in the good fortune. Also, they found that behind some of the smiles and congratulations was actually a significant amount of jealousy and bad wishes. In some cases, the jealousy was so powerful that it turned otherwise law-abiding people into criminals. 
Unfortunately for Pennsylvania resident William Post, he found this out the hard way after winning the jackpot when his own family tried to shorten his lifespan a bit faster than nature intended. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. William Post III, known as Bud to his friends and family, was born in Erie, Pennsylvania in 1940. He had a tough childhood. When he was eight years old, he was sent to an orphanage after his mother passed away. He lived there for seven years until he ran away at age 15, eventually enlisting in the army. When he left the military, Bud found work where he could. On pipelines, as a cook, he was a truck driver for circuses and carnivals. You name it, he did it. The different jobs took him all over the country, and he seemed to embrace the lifestyle of a drifter. Like many people, Bud enjoyed trying his luck at the lottery, but it was usually money lost. In February 1988, the Pennsylvania lottery jackpot was over $30 million, and at $1 a ticket, it was not uncommon to buy several at a time. Wanting in, but with no available funds, Bud headed to a pawn shop to sell his ring for cash. Money in hand and feeling lucky, he gave $40 to his sometimes girlfriend and full-time landlady and asked her to buy 40 tickets. He didn't have to wait long to buy back the ring from the pawn shop, because it turns out that one of those tickets was a very big winner. Still in shock that he was actually holding the golden ticket, Bud soon learned there was a second winner out there. A group of office players had also won, so the jackpot was split 50-50. He received just over $16 million. Still, not a bad chunk of money for a guy who had $2.46 in his bank account, was on disability payments, and didn't own a home or a car. The lottery winnings were scheduled to be paid out annually in payments of nearly $500,000 each. Two weeks after receiving his first payment, Bud had already spent more than $300,000. He bought a restaurant for his brother and sister bought a used car lot and all the cars on it for another brother, and bought himself a twin-engine plane. It's probably important to note that Bud had no idea how to fly. Within three months, Bud was somehow half a million dollars in debt. By year's end, he was a staggering one million dollars in debt. How could this be? Well, he was spending money like a rock star. One thing he bought was a 16-room mansion in Oil City, Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, lottery winners quickly going bankrupt is not uncommon. In fact, they are far more likely than most to declare bankruptcy. Typically, people who come into large amounts of money can easily overspend if they don't change their spending habits. As Bud's financial picture went from bad to worse, two years after he won the lottery, his former landlady and sometimes girlfriend sued him. She argued that they had agreed to split any winnings and wanted her share. Bud said this wasn't true at all, but after three years of battling it out in court, a judge ruled she was entitled to one-third of his claim. However, he refused to pay, 
so the judge froze all future lottery payments until a settlement was reached a year later. After that, millionaire William Post III basically had nothing. According to the Washington Post, people who visited his sprawling mansion said it was in shambles. Quote, plywood covered windows, missing shower stalls, a swimming pool filled with debris, an old car on blocks in a weedy yard, and a malfunctioning security system that chirped six times every 60 seconds. Not a fan of his fortune, Bud was quoted saying, I was much happier when I was broke. 1993 was not a good year for Bud Post. It went from horrible to just plain dark when he learned that his brother hired a contract killer. Apparently, the brother strongly believed he deserved to inherit the winnings when he died. But he would have to wait in a very long line. Bud was the proud father of 10 children from six different marriages. But it seemed Bud had a bit of luck left in him because the hitman backed out and went to police. He told officers the plan was to make the couple's death look like a murder-suicide. With all the evidence against him, the brother was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Bud's wife was so freaked out by the murder plot that she packed up and left. But don't worry about old Bud. He would go on to marry his seventh wife. As he set his sight on getting out of debt, Bud started selling off his assets. He sold his mansion for a whopping $65,000 and auctioned off his remaining 17 annual lottery payments for a lump sum. Bud was determined to change course, and his plan was simple. He started to pay off his bills and was creating a nest egg for the future. As he told the Guardian newspaper, his hope was that, quote, Once I'm no longer a lottery winner, people will leave me alone. That's all I want. Just peace of mind. But old habits die hard, or in this case, not at all. Within a year, Bud had spent almost all of the $2.6 million nest egg on two more houses, a truck, three cars, two Harley-Davidson motorcycles, two massive televisions, a camper, computer equipment, and a $260,000 sailboat. He was on that very sailboat in 1998 when police came to arrest him. Six years earlier, Bud had fired a shotgun at a debt collector, thankfully missing his target. He was taken into custody, found guilty, and sent to prison for almost two years. When he was released, he was right back where he had started prior to winning the lottery. He had no money and was back on food stamps with only a small monthly disability check to get by. Bud had come full circle from poverty to millionaire and back to poverty again with quite the exciting journey along the way. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
This man just won more than 1.1 million U.S. dollars in the Super Lotto. They identified the man only as A. Campbell. The man told them it took him 54 days to come forward and claim his prize because he was nervous. In fact, he told Loop News that he's been sick or has had a headache since the day he won. He claims the winning numbers came in a dream. And the One common concern amongst lottery winners is having to go public with your identity. However, it's often a requirement in order to claim the prize money. Recently, one winner decided it was better to wear a Halloween mask when collecting his winnings than make his identity known to the public. And does not want anyone to know he's a millionaire. And here's what he did. He won the Super Lotto and wore the mask here from the horror movie Scream to claim his $158.4 million. That's hysterical. You know? I mean, yeah. this is perfect. Look at that. Kind he's got scary, gloves on. Perfect. That is hysterical. Well, I mean, you know. I don't blame him. No. Because you know, have family members that come out the woodwork. Uh-huh. You know. You know, way down the line. Back in 1960, people didn't have the same concerns. Winners back then were proud to have their names featured in the news. That was until Basil Thorne of Australia won the lottery. The New South Wales government had been exploring ideas on funding the construction of the now famous Sydney Opera House. They decided to host a lottery, and on June 1, 1960, 37-year-old Basil Thorne won 100,000 Australian pounds. He was one of many winners, as there were multiple draws in that lottery. At the time, a modest home in Sydney could be bought for around 8,000 pounds, so 100,000 was a sizable amount of money. Basil and his wife, Frida, had three children, two girls and an eight-year-old boy, Graham. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, a typical conservative Australian family who lived modest but honest lives that required them to struggle to make ends meet. The family lived in a simple apartment in the Sydney suburb of Bondi. On July 7, 1960, Graham left his home and walked to a nearby corner to be picked up by a neighbor and driven to school. He did this every morning, but on that day, Graham didn't arrive at the corner. The neighbor drove to the Thorn residence to make sure the boy wasn't just running a bit late. Realizing that Graham was nowhere to be found, they called the school, but he wasn't there either. Where had he gone? Police were quickly notified, and an officer was sent over to investigate. Basil Thorne was out of town on business, so when the phone rang at the apartment, the officer answered, pretending to be Basil. The voice on the other end claimed to have Graham and demanded 25,000 pounds for the boy's safe return. The kidnapper wanted the money delivered by 5 p.m. that day and said that if anything went wrong, that Graham would be, quote, fed to the sharks. He said that he would call back later with further instructions. The kidnapping of Graham Thorne was the first official case of child abduction for ransom in Australia. About 15 minutes later, the unknown man called back. He told them to put the money in two paper bags and wait for further instructions before hanging up. When Frida was asked by police if anything suspicious had happened recently, she thought for a moment before replying, yes. The incident hadn't crossed her mind until now, 
but she did recall an odd encounter about two weeks after they had won the lottery. She said that it was evening when there was a knock on the door of their apartment. When Frida answered, a man she didn't recognize asked to speak to a Mr. Bogner. She remembered that the stranger spoke with a thick European accent. When Frida told him that she didn't know anyone by that name, the man began pressing her for more information. She explained to him that they had just moved into the apartment and didn't know many of the neighbors. Frida told him that she thought the previous tenant's name was Bailey, but the man said that's not who he was looking for. Appearing agitated, she said that he read a phone number and asked her to confirm if it was theirs. It was their number, but how could the stranger know it? Having just moved in, the phone number was new and not listed in the directory. In fact, the phone line had not even been installed yet. Aside from the Thorns and the phone company, no one should have had that information. When Frida asked the man where he got it, he said cryptically, We have ways and means. Before leaving, the man told Frida that he was a private investigator and was looking into a domestic affair. Frida suggested that it might be more helpful if he spoke to one of the other neighbors, and with that, he left. She didn't think about him again until now. With little to go on, authorities reached out to the public for any information about Graham's kidnapping. One couple reported seeing a suspicious vehicle the morning Graham went missing. They noticed an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line at the intersection where the boy was usually picked up for school. It stood out because the car was parked in a way that was blocking the sidewalk, forcing pedestrians to walk around. While the couple was able to provide a good description of the driver, they unfortunately did not get the license plate number. With this new information, investigators set out to find the iridescent blue Ford and its owner. They quickly discovered that it was a very popular make, with about 4,000 of them registered in the immediate area. Police started the daunting task of tracking down and interviewing the owners, but with time a major factor, they knew it was a long shot. One day after the kidnapping, authorities located Graham's school bag. It was empty, but a few days later, they found his cap and school supplies nearby. There was still no sign of him. On August 16th, six weeks after he went missing, Graham's body was found in a vacant lot in a suburb of Sydney. He was wrapped in a wool rug and, according to the autopsy, most likely died from asphyxiation. The medical examiner concluded that the boy died within 24 hours of being taken. Investigators focused on the new evidence, starting with the rug. With only around 3,000 manufactured, it became an important clue in the investigation. On it, they found dog hair, thought to be from a Pekingese, as well as a light-colored strand of hair belonging to a person. Investigators also found samples of two types of plants and pink limestock soil that could not be matched to anything in the area where Graham's body was found. Police continued to follow up on every lead, crossing off names from a long list of people of interest as they went. That was until they came across a man named Stephen Bradley. At the time of the kidnapping, 
the Hungarian lived on a property that had both types of plants and the same pink soil detectives had found on the rug. Inside the house, they found a tassel that perfectly matched the ones on the rug. Police also discovered that Bradley owned a dog, but had dropped it off at a local vet. The dog was a Pekingese, the same breed as the hares found on the rug. When police tracked down Bradley's vehicle at a used car lot outside the city, they were not surprised it was a 1955 iridescent blue Ford Custom Line. A short time later, Frida Thorne was shown a photograph of the man suspected of taking her son. She confirmed that it was the same man who knocked on her door weeks earlier. They also showed the picture to the couple who identified the car on the day of the kidnapping, and they too said it was the same man. Now, authorities had to find Stephen Bradley. After selling his house and car, he and his family left the country. Police were able to trace his steps and learned that he was on a boat headed to Sri Lanka with his wife and children. His wife, coincidentally, had dyed blonde hair, which matched the one found on the rug. When the boat docked, he was promptly taken into custody and soon confessed to the kidnapping and murder. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, Bradley said that after he saw Thorne's winning lottery picture in the newspaper, he became fiercely jealous. He believed the family didn't need the money as much as he did. A few days after Basil Thorne won, Bradley saw an article about people being kidnapped for ransom, and a terrible idea took root. He began stalking the Thorns and found out where they lived and the family routine. He targeted the boy, thinking he was too young to identify him once the ransom was paid. Despite his full confession, at his trial, Bradley pleaded not guilty, claiming that he signed it because he was afraid for the safety of his family. But it only took the court nine days to find him guilty and sentence him to life with hard labor. He died in prison seven years later of a heart attack at the age of 42. She's accused of killing a lottery winner after taking control of his wealth. And today, Dozens of officers are searching for a dangerous escapee who broke out of a South Georgia jail. He's accused of murdering a lottery winner. As we first reported last night, police are looking at him for another murder involving a man who had just recently won a $50,000 lottery. This morning, the man trying to claim a winning lottery prize instead ending up in handcuffs. The alleged plot revealed... He was believed to have won the lottery in December and then disappeared the next day. You know those lucky numbers on the back of the fortune inside a fortune cookie? For Charles Jackson of North Carolina, those numbers were really lucky. Jackson, a 66-year-old retiree, won $345 million in 2019 when he played the numbers found in his fortune cookie. Jackson bought a lottery ticket every week, but usually stuck to the same numbers. But after a dinner at a local Asian restaurant, his eight-year-old granddaughter gave him a fortune cookie, and he promised to use the numbers inside. Later, when it was time to check his ticket against the winning numbers, Charles Jackson was thrilled to see that he had matched almost all of them. He hadn't won the jackpot, 
but the numbers he did match would get him an impressive $50,000. But as he calmed down and looked at the ticket a second time, he realized that, in fact, all the numbers matched. He was about to become very wealthy. He told his wife, quote, You ain't gonna believe this. I got it all. And by all, he meant that he had just won the largest single-ticket jackpot ever in the state of North Carolina. Jackson said that he hopes his big winnings won't change his life. At a news conference, he told reporters, quote, Let me put it this way. I'll still wear jeans, but I'll probably buy some new ones. After buying himself a new pair of jeans, he said he was going to give his brother $1 million, a promise they made each other if either of them ever won the lottery. Jackson named several charities where he planned to make sizable donations. He also said that he wanted to take his wife on a vacation to Asia. I'm guessing in honor of the restaurant that gave him the very lucky fortune cookie. But for those who play the lottery dreaming of hitting the jackpot, don't forget, the big payoff is not always worth it. As the saying goes, sometimes a lot of money can be very expensive. is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Haley Gray. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets, On the Market, Rookie Real Estate, or Money Podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets Podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.